0: hello to you dear listener thank you for downloading thank you for streaming thank you for listening to uh, to coming up next to the podcast this is my show i do this show Every week, uh, and if this is your first time stopping by the Ramble Room, there are 121 other delicious and long-winded rambles available to you on iTunes, on Stitcher, and or on Podbean. And um, if you're if you're enjoying it, you know you might as well hit the uh, hit the subscribe button. That's going to be in the uh, I think top right-hand corner of your screen. That way, it's just going to magically appear in your uh, in your podcast app or however it is that you consume podcasts every week um, and if you're feeling particularly good about the show if you're really enjoying it, if you're a long time listener maybe you want to leave a little uh, five star rating and a, uh, and a review of the show as well I know it probably seems ridiculous and ambiguous and I say pretty much the same thing every week but I, it really does help um, I'll start reading them out if you'd like um, If you if you want to Leave a review uh, and write, I, I will check uh, over the next seven days. And if you leave a review, if there's any new reviews left, I'll, I'll read them out and I'll say your handle name. Um, and we'll be friends. That's right. <laughs> My guest this week, the Carnation Kid, Mark Holden. You may know him from uh, from his time on Australian Idol he has—he's uh, got a book out at the moment. It's a tell-all called *My Idol Years*, uh, and it starts off in his uh, final year on Australian Idol, and it's—it's uh, it's caused a fair bit of uh, controversy for some of the things that he says in it about the Australian music industry, about where it was at, about where it's gotten to, um, and about his relationship with uh, certain members of the Australian Idol team. Um, but. I won't go into too much of that right now because I'm about to speak with the man. Well, I'm not about to. I I spoke with him a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm, I'm about to present to you my conversation with the one and only Carnation Kid, Mark Holden.
1: It's pretty remarkable, uh, you know, in looking back over a career like the career that you've had to see so much kind of diversity in what you've done and how you've managed to create this career that is, you know, four decades in um, through being kind of a multifaceted creator, artist, also mm. lawyer, barrister.
2: Yeah, it didn't, it was certainly not by design, I can assure you. Right. <laughs> just It just happened. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I say that I'm unmanageable, I'm un- unemployable and I never had a plan. I only knew that uh, I really didn't want to work and I really didn't want to work for anyone. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't something that I consciously knew, but it, it became evident over the years. And uh, even, even when I was a pop star in the 70s, you know, I would fire my managers just like, because I just would prefer my own opinion and <laughs> <laughs> right or wrong yeah. you know right or wrong and, and often wrong um but you know I just would prefer to do it my own way and very hard I mean my mother uh I, when I came back to Australia in the 90s we moved with my one and a half year old baby back to my mother's place and and my it was just so hard for mum because she just Found me intolerable. Yeah. And because, you know, I wouldn't, you know, for example, I wouldn't do the eaves. You know, I wouldn't take the leaves out of the eaves. And of course, all men do that. And I said, Mum, I, you know, I'll pay for somebody to come and do it, but, you know, I don't do that. And it just frustrated her. And it frustrated her. It took her (laughs) back to the time when I was, you know, a teenager and living in her house. And, And it was the same, you know. They, at one point, I went to a school where you had to have your hair a half an inch above the collar. And you know, I just refused to do that. And at one point, I remember her and my father actually holding me down and cutting the back of my. Hair. <laughs> <laughs> they just got so frustrated with me yeah. that I refused to do it. and uh, so it's just been the way of life, so I've had to uh, I've had to constantly just figure out how to make a living and um, and save enough to get through the the, you know, the, the times when there was no money. And, and, and unfortunately, my grandmother, both my grandmothers, had uh, husbands who were hopeless for different reasons. <laughs> One, because he was gas during World War I, yeah. and the other just because he just had a mental collapse in his 40s. And so the women had to take on the role of managing the money, managing the finances. They were really tight. They lived on virtually nothing. I don't know how they did it, and somehow or other, I inherited that. I inherited that that uh, real careful um, management of money, and 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 always feeling that I needed to save for the next period of fallow nothingness, which happened, you know, for you know, often for two or three years at a time. There'd be literally nothing coming in.
1: So even when you're at the kind of uh, peak of your well, no, then like... there
2: was just money falling out of the sky. I mean, no, in the five years of in the five years that I was a pop star, I just money just kept falling out of the sky. It was wonderful, and uh, but
1: then of I had. You're young, and you probably don't know how to. Uh, I didn't. Well,
2: respond. no, no, no. I was pretty even pretty good even then. No, I bought I, I bought my grandparents' house for cash, Right. and uh, no, no, but I, I, I was, but but it was it was effortless. Money just was out. But then. You know, then I went to America and was on a on an advance for two years, which was cool. And then I was dropped, and then I was like in deep space. I had no no job, no income, um, no way. I mean, I was in a, so that was the first big period of of a number of years where where there was nothing and where I had to sell that house of my grandparents and and you know. Uh, so it's it served me well. It's, it's, it has served me well. But um, I think I've become you know the kind of contemporary person what you need to be because my father and his era were people who had a job for life and I've never had a job and so I've, I've constantly just had to do whatever to make a living and use my wits and, uh, and, and have managed to do it you know, miraculously. I'm not really sure how.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's probably no coincidence then that you, as someone who was uh, very good at managing yourself and managing your own funds, would then mm. go on to become a manager. Um, yes. And even a barrister now as well. Yes. Well,
2: a barrister fits into that perfectly because with being a barrister you're not employed by anybody in fact you can't even incorporate as a barrister yeah you uh, you have to have a, you know like lawyers can create a, a firm that's that's incorporated uh, solicitors but barristers can't barristers have to be paid as an individual um, they can't work for anybody so it's uh, it, it absolutely entirely suited my mentality and ethos. And, and also there's in the barrister caper, you know, you work on a, on a case, maybe it's for a week or maybe it's for three years, but it's finite, you know, you do it, it's done, it's over, um, unless there's an appeal or something or other, but, but generally, you know, you do it, it's done, it's over, you know, but it's in a sense, it's worse than show business because it's harder to get paid in the law. In show business, it's super hard to get paid. Mm. As a songwriter, it's hard to get paid, but it's worse as a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's so hard to get paid. I've just been in a case that uh, it's gone on for two years. We won in three th- three different versions of it. It was bought three times. We, we we won in each in each version of it. Well, they withdrew in each version of it and gave up. And uh, we have costs orders and, you know, we just can't get paid. Now we've got to go to Costs Court to get paid. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's crazy, man. It's worse crazy. than... And even then, even you go to Costs Court, you know, they can then just go bankrupt or whatever and then you get nothing. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's worse than show business, the yeah. law, at that level. But, but I'm used to chasing money, you know. I think if you're going to be in business for yourself, you know, a good portion of your time has to be spent chasing money and and it seems turns out it's the same as a you know, as a as a lawyer yeah know,
1: you know. so the old uh, adage of uh, uh, mothers and i and i i'm i'm jewish so i always have this kind of mm. thing of you know mother telling you to be a doctor or a lawyer yes perhaps the uh, the old lawyer thing is not as uh uh, safeguarded as, as the mothers think well maybe uh, I, I'm only a pretty
2: junior lawyer I've only been doing it for 8 years and and I've been doing it at a different level than ha- had I come at it earlier and you know had a mortgage and a family that I needed to to uh, you know service I, I, it would have been different but I, I came at it when I was 55 and so I'd have less pressure to, to make money but um it, no it's very tough it's a very 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 tough business mm. it's a fabulous thing being a barrister it's really wonderful but it's uh, high stress and as i said it's you know if you get paid at the magistrate's court scale it's like teeny tiny amounts of money you know you go out to the drug court in dandenong which i've done 120 bucks for the morning yeah, right. you've got to get to that dandenong you know, you've you know, you <laughs> you got, got, you got to be in Dandenong and you get 120 bucks for an appearance in the, in the, it's, I mean, it's sort of the, the sort of money I made in 1975 as a folk singer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's unreal. I don't know how, I don't know how young lawyers make a go of it. Um, it's got to be super tough, I think.
1: Yeah, but do you feel like there's a higher level of job satisfaction or...
2: Can be, I think there can be. Um, I think there can also be a a high level of job stress. Yeah. It's a really difficult caper. It's much more difficult than I imagined it would be. Um, I I can say this, I've I've written a one-man show called The Greatest Show on Earth about my family circus. and, And I've performed it now... Uh, twice and I've done one workshop down in uh, Drysdale and um, when I'm getting ready to go and perform it those three times I certainly get nervous you know and I get wound up but I'm never like Uh, you know there's an excitement and a and a and i'm of course i'm always worried if there's ever going to be an audience not these things haven't well one of them was at the savage club and it did did have an audience so you know i was worried is anyone going to turn up yeah but but other than that i don't dread it you know i actually look forward to it the the time on stage is a beautiful time Uh, you know there's the magic of of one minute you're off stage and the next minute you're on stage and there's another, there's a whole magic. And and that's true of being a barrister and being in court too, but but by contrast, you know, I won't sleep the night before I go to court. You know, I'll be super worried. I'll be really, really worried. Um, I'll be worried that I've missed something, that I've misunderstood something, that I've not got the law right or, or something, you know. And I'll be very anxious when I go into court in the morning. You know, I'll be really wound up. And if it's something that goes for, you know, more than a morning or a day, you know, like like a trial, I'll, I'll be exhausted at the end of each day. I mean, you know, just absolutely mentally and physically exhausted. And, you know, stressed that whole night as well. It's a whole different thing. I'll be exhausted from performing, but I'll be exhilarated when i do my show you know i'll come off and i'll be my my suit will be sweat all the way through it but um but i'll be but i'll, but I'll never have that level of of anxiety mm. and worry that i do when i'm perform you know when i'm appearing in court uh, it's a whole other level thing it's a whole other level of stress because you know if you get your performance wrong at a gig you know it's a, it's a bummer you know, if you get your uh, appearance wrong as a barrister, somebody loses something. You yeah. know, it could be they go to jail. It could be they lose money. It could be they lose access. It could be any number of things that are really, really serious. And, and I did have one experience where I was representing a uh, a young man. I won't say too much about it, but, but he was a Sikh. And... Um, and he was accused of something. I, I, I obviously can't talk about it, but but um, we lost, and uh, you know I, I offered to do his appeal for free, and and uh, unfortunately he got deported, and you know him and his his wife and a baby got deported, and it was such an extraordinary consequence, you know. I mean it was super heavy duty, that changed the baby's life. Yeah you know that was a that was an amazing heavy loss mm. you know that wasn't somebody losing 10 grand or 20 grand or a million dollars that had five that was that was somebody who had very little but had managed to get themselves to Australia yeah and uh and I felt that he was innocent of the charge I really did and, and you know we don't have to believe that to defend people obviously we that's not the that's, you know, that's not, not the job. We don't, that's not the job. The job isn't believing, what well, the job isn't even finding the truth. The job is, the job is, you know, the, putting the prosecution to, to the test. You know, yeah. that's the job. And, and, and I wasn't, uh, and I didn't get it right, you know, and it was just, uh, it was devastating. So it's a, you know, but going to, even the few times I've done the show, I, get excited I'm ready to go I'm looking forward to doing it you walk on stage and there's a light there and and it's awesome and then I'm telling a story and I get caught up in it and and I I I can trust myself in that environment it's not that I don't trust myself in court but being in you know being only an eight year and eight years sounds like a lot but um, being only a relatively junior barrister still in my my own mind. Um, you know, each situation is still like a massive learning curve and mm-hmm. each situation is, you know, you get to a point point you go, gosh, I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <You
1: know>? <laughs> <laughs> I guess in, uh, in show business, you're told to make the stakes life and death and in the courtroom, it actually is Correct. to an extent. Life That's and exactly death. right. And it's never life and death in show
2: business. When you're younger, it might seem like it is. Um, and, and perhaps it is to some degree because it, it's, it, it defines whether you can have a sustained, make a sustained living out of it, I guess. So it's, in a sense, it is life and death when you're younger. But uh, no, I've, uh, I've, I'm have i turning more back to that now because um, I still want the challenge. I still want the brain to be exercised. I still want to be uh, putting myself in new situations, but I just don't want to be as stressed as as you need to be when you're, seriously representing people in a court
1: yeah you you, you know you said a couple of times um that you've only been doing this for eight years yep. and you you turned back to your law degree uh for the third time yes, uh, when you, in, in 2007 after um after your last in on australian idol
2: uh, yeah 2008 i was fired in March of 2008, I was fired from Straight and Idle, and it was such a shock, and it was so devastating, and it was so unexpected, and it was so publicly humiliating uh, that it took me aback. And I spent most of that year kind of gathering my thoughts and and just absorbing the shock. And uh what was it in particular that you found to be uh, humiliating? Oh, embarrassing it's just it well? just getting fired. I, you know, I've only been fired twice in my life. I don't know whether you've ever been fired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was it a good or bad experience? It was not a good experience. Wasn't a good experience. Well, the first time fired for me was a really good experience. I, uh, I, nineteen, eight, eighty, early nineties or something. I, I got uh, offered a job in Los Angeles to run a publishing company for a company called Left Bank Management, who were Richard Marx's management company, and they managed. Uh, the BGS for a while, and all kinds of different people, all kinds of different people, and they wanted to set up a publishing company. They were on the 17th floor of the Motown building on on Sunset Boulevard, and I thought that sounds pretty good. I think I could be a publisher, and I knew the law. What the one of the partners was a had was my lawyer, and he knew I kind of had ambitions to see if I could be an executive. And he gave me the gig, and uh, I found you know I, I was, it was on the 17th floor of the Motown building, very groovy. Um, I had an office, I'd never had an office before. And every Tuesday and Friday, they had a a board, a meeting for everybody, the record company, the publishing, the touring company, the management company, in the boardroom at 7.30 on a Tuesday and a Friday. And I went to the first week and I went to the 7.30 on the Tuesday and I went to the 7.30 on the Friday. Then I realised, every fucking week I'm going to be here, I've got to be at this fucking meeting at 7.30 on a Tuesday <laughs> and 7.30 on a Friday for as long as I work here. Every single week yeah. that I work here from now on, I'm going to have to do that. i would never had to be anywhere, you know, in my life on a regular basis. Mm. You know, i would never had to be anywhere. And... So I just found, I just found having to be there just really
1: distressing. Is that anti-authoritarian? Yeah, well, thing it again? wasn't
2: even just anti-authoritarian. It was just having to be somewhere, yeah, yeah, where I didn't want to be. And so they had a, there was a fire escape next to my my office. So I'd come in in the morning and I'd do the hot because it was the whole floor. I'd do I'd do the square. I'd make sure everybody saw me. I'd walk around, say hello to everybody, go to my office, see if there's anything to do. And then I'd sneak in, sneak out, sneak out, the <laughs> fire escape and, and go down to the next floor and catch the lift and go home. Yeah, right. And then I'd do the reverse around about 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't that I wasn't working. I mean, yeah. I was happy to do the just work. working on your own terms. I was, I, was, I was happy to do the work. I just didn't want to be there. Yeah. And there was a gross guy that was showed this disgusting porn and stuff and expected you to, we're also, everyone was supposed to sit in there and go, oh yeah. And I was like, I don't even
1: want to. This was like a recreational oh, viewing no, no, of
2: porn. Well, no, this is like people in an office, you know, like in a record company.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, but and, I mean, he was showing it as yeah, like yeah, a
2: yeah. kind of la- have a laugh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know, but it was, but it was just. I just yeah, didn't. Right. I just didn't want to be there. I just didn't want to be there. And this then after, like Los Angeles. This is Los 80s? Angeles in the in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, right. And uh, I, I just didn't want to be there. So what it wasn't that I wasn't? And the other thing I discovered was. I don't really want to work on things that are not my own. Yeah. You know, I just hadn't, it hadn't really clicked in at that point because I'd never done that before, but going, I was selling songwriters and stuff, which I love doing. I love songwriters and I love songs, but they weren't mine. And I'm happy to go out and sell my own and, and create projects and sell them. But I just found, you know, that, you know, that I, 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 I discovered that unless I have, I have some skin in the game, unless in some way I own part of it, um, or I've created part of it, therefore own part of it. It just didn't have the same. Uh, it didn't have the same uh, drive. I didn't have the same drive for it. Yeah. And so after about a year, I got the guy that hired me called me in and said, "We don't want you anymore." I said, "Thank you very much." <laughs> 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 and as I'm driving back, I was going, thank you, Jesus, free at last. Thank God <laughs> almighty, I'm free at last. And I left there with uh, Mila Jovovich. Right. Uh, I you had, had I'd found Mila Jovovich like while I was there yeah. and burrowed into it and, um, and came out with, uh, with that project, mm. which I then worked on for the next year. We made an album with her, which was it came out on EMI sometime around then and uh, it was a beautiful experience it was a beautiful record she's a beautiful she was a beautiful young girl she's a beautiful woman and and unfortunately she hasn't gone on and had a music career but she's incredibly talented mm. and we made one very beautiful album called the divine comedy and uh, it's uh, it's it stands up but still beautiful today unfortunately only the singles on on uh, Apple's uh, iTunes and, and Apple, unfortunately, I don't know why they haven't put the album, but the single, which is called "Gentleman Who Fell," is on, on uh, Spotify and, oh, yeah, cool. and Apple, yeah. And there's a there's a there's one that she did years later of just her and a piano singing it, which is somewhere on the web, which is beautiful as well. That might be on, on Apple and I and Spotify as well.
1: So that was your first experience of getting fired.
2: That was my first experience of getting fired, and and that was a pleasant experience. It was it was an enormous relief. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot about myself. Um, the second time was idle, and that was shattering because I didn't see it coming. I mean, I could see it coming with this one. You know, I just was not a fit over there, yeah. over,
1: at, over at Left Bank. I mean, just, they're all hardcore, old school Yeah. Right. rock dogs, you know. What was it like to be in, just a, as a kind of sidetrack, what was it like to be immersed in the, in the music culture of, you know, the 80s? Uh, and, and the '90s in Los Angeles. Well, I was
2: mainly in the '80s. I was mainly in the R&B world. I, I spent most of I spent most of the '80s in the R&B world. Um, I had probably four or five top ten R&B hits, and with different people. Uh, two with the Temptations, uh, a girl called Tracy Spencer. Um, there was there was a bunch of them, and. Um, uh, I, I, it was a terrific time for me. I, I, I just found, uh, found my way into it through, I don't know, just osmosis. I, I, wasn't, I had no idea that that was, it was not something that I was ever particularly interested in when I was in, growing up in Australia. I was just into pop music. But uh, when I uh, got dropped by uh, the label, my, the label that took me to America, the Scotty Brothers, and found myself, as we talked about earlier, out on my ass with nothing... And spending my savings, um, you know, I really had no idea what I was going to do, you know, and I, because I again came to a conclusion at that time that my voice wasn't good enough and that I was never really going to be a, an American style rock pop singer because I just didn't have the voice. There are, you know, somebody like Glenn Shurik or, or Vanessa Amorosi or Tina Arena or not so much John Farnham, his voice didn't work internationally but um but there are or john John paul young there are people who have a voice and vanessa's a classic example it just sounds great on the radio there are people i call radio voices you know there are great radio voices phil collins is great radio voice there's just so many of them beyonce obviously i mean there's name but i i came to the conclusion that i was never going to cut it on the radio in America with my voice Uh, I was a hit in Australia because of Countdown which was a visual thing and America at that time in the 80s was still not a visual you know MTV hadn't happened and it was all about the radio so you know I just made that decision I'm not going to be an artist anymore that's it so what am I going to be so I decided I want to be a songwriter and, and um and within a couple of years, I had written my first hit, which was for The Temptations. And, uh, and from there on, it just kind of rocked along. But the same thing, you know, that 80s it was R&B. It was it was going down to Watts and Compton. I'd found, find myself in the ghetto. Uh, I, I found myself on the corner of Florence and, and uh, Normandy in, in Compton or Watts, which is where uh, Reginald Denny got his head bashed in with a brick that started the LA riots. I was that liquor store. If you've ever seen that footage, that liquor store was the corner that I used to call the guys cause they had a studio in Watts and, um, and, and they'd never answer the door. They'd never, you know, if you knocked, you could knock for hours and they'd never, ever answer the door. So I had to go and I didn't have a mobile phone at that time. Um, what well, probably wasn't before mobile phones, but I didn't have one. And so I had to use the call box. So I'd stand in, in the, Corner of Florence and Normandy in the liquor store, a very white-looking male in a in a in the black ghetto, and and with a street lamp over my head <laughs> shining down on me and a black briefcase. I must have looked like a drug dealer. Yeah. And um, you know, uh, I'm sure I'm just. It's amazing that I was never targeted because it was I was a sitting duck. But I uh, I never I never managed to get. I, I never had any actual trouble. It was, a, it was a, I guess, a, I don't know, just lucky.
1: Was it very much that kind of burning the candle at both ends, you know, work by day, party by night? Um, sort of...
2: No, the work was the party. Right. You know, that was the attraction. No, the work was absolutely the party. No, I loved the work. You know, I'd, I'd go to that little studio in Compton and <clears throat> there'd be all these young black kids who have gone on to become, a lot of them have gone on to become very successful. I bumped into one, I just tried to... I can't Think of his name right now when I was doing Idol, um, and he was Lionel Richie's MD at the time. And I was like, Oh man, what do you? I'm Lionel Richie's MD, and he was one I used to see in the and Barry Gordy, uh, uh, his nephew, uh, Rodney Gordy, was sniffing around all at the young, um, the young writers, and so Rodney would be there as well. And 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 this guy, Larry Robinson, was it was his father's place, and he had the studio out the back. And, and he'd have all these black kids over there doing things and he'd say, now, okay, the rule is anyone who makes a contribution, you're not getting any credit. <laughs> <laughs> you can come over here and play. You can come over here and get your chops up. But I'm just telling you, none of you are getting any credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then some of them, Kipper Jones and and Kenny was the guy that I found down there. Uh, gradually, he'd sign he signed them all to his own publishing company and then they did become writers and they did get credit but they were getting they were working out how to sequence and they were you know working out how to do beats and and i, I would sit down there and just be you know just loving it just just loving being around it but it was a da- it was a dangerous place but then I, then I got into a partnership with two two other black guys uh, one uh, guy called uh, anthony curtis who was in um uh is it the thing of the Imperials? No, no. Uh one of the old really old bands, I can't remember right now. And and another and another guy that was uh worked for um Quest, Quincy Jones Company, and we formed a management company and we took those guys from that studio and managed them. And and essentially but, but for me the point was I was getting a third of the management commission. Right. Uh but the most important part was I was creating the songs with the guys. And, and so I, I, that's the part that I loved. So I, they would create the beats, the tracks, and, and I'd write the melodies and, and, and the lyrics. And, and in some cases, uh, well, with Kenny, my, my friend Kenny, he was great with melodies and things too. And, uh, and, and we just started banging out tracks and, and you know, selling the making of the record, not just the song. Mm. so that we could have a piece of the you know piece of the production and that was something that i'd learnt that you you know it's the old marxist theory you need to you have to control the means of production and this was my way of doing it was was being you know an organizer of these young guys getting them over into their own place in burbank you know in the white in white old burbank taking yeah. them out of the hood setting them up in in burbank Giving them access to studios that weren't with Larry, you know, <laughs> where they could do their own thing, and right. and uh, um, it was a really good, it was a great lifestyle. I loved doing it. You know, we'd sometimes stay up for, you know, a couple of days in a studio, and um, it, no, it was it was wonderful. It was mm-hmm. wonderful. I got to see, um, you know, I got to be with the Temptations when they were recording. I got to, to hear. Ali Ollie Woodson, who was the singer at the time, come in having having just done some crack or something, something heavy. Yeah, you yeah know.
1: right. And was that kind of drug culture
2: sort of big? Huge. It was yeah. huge, yeah. They rotated lead singers because the at the end of each tour they'd make a record, and or no, before each tour they'd make a record, then they tour the record. And so the guy that was on that that record who was a singer would do the tour they'd cash up they'd go berserk and then they'd bring in another singer for the next right. record yeah so I had two because I did I did two I did uh, I worked with them over two albums so I had two different singers and the best one was Ali Ollie Woodson he was just you know I've never seen or heard people sing like that I'd never experienced somebody you know sing with such exquisite pain and in such beautiful sound and and uh, and he made the song a hit. It was he did he absolutely made the song a hit. It was called Lady Soul and it's a it's a brilliant vocal. He only did two passes. He wow. did two passes <laughs> and left, and that's all he did. And that, so I got to see what real you know deep heavy fantastic soul singing really is and then on the other side i got to uh, spend some time with smokey robinson and he was the opposite he was a watchmaker he would work on an individual word for 10 minutes or 15 minutes and so he chipped away at it so i saw the two different approaches mm. you know the, the 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 jeweler the watchmaker versus the the you know chaos <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah so I guess, I guess to kind of round out that conversation, I mean, in, um, you know, you've, you've written this amazing book, um, this, this tell all book, yeah. um, my idle years. Yeah. And you, you know, you talked about the kind of your kind of lifestyle, which I guess is what I was, um, alluding to before. Yes. And you, you know, when you did sort of first move over to Los Angeles talking about, you know, how there was this kind of, uh, culture of drinking, sleeping and occasionally fucking when you Yes. Cook. Yes, well, that,
2: no, that was working at um,
1: that was working at
2: Harris. Right. No, that was that was no. The Harris experience was an entirely different thing. You go into a into a universe. You know, I, I mean, the guys. What are those guys' names from uh, <clears throat> Human Nature? Human Nature have been doing for five or six years now. They've been doing show a show at uh, somewhere in Vegas. In Vegas, yeah, yeah. And they'd be doing three shows a night minimum. Yeah. Minimum of three shows a night. Can you imagine doing three shows a night? Yeah, that's crazy. 3 40, 40 minute sets or 45 minute <laughs> sets. So you start at 8 and you go home at 2 or 3 in the morning. And that's your life and it's 7 days a week. Mm. It's 7 days a week. It's not that there's not there's not a, there's no Sunday in Vegas, you know. <laughs> there's no Monday. It's it's a bizarre life. No, that's that that was a different life. That was another one I did. I did the Harris thing and uh, I I I just couldn't create. You know, it was just that's that's it. All you could do was the shows, and nothing else. Just sleep. You know, get a fuck if you could, if you're lucky. Um, clean your undies. That's it. Yeah. Get up and do it again
1: the next day. There's no life. I guess you under you can kind of get an understanding of why people develop these addictions. Or oh, these oh absolutely.
2: Because I found myself. The producer had a had a, a suite and uh, he had a bottle of cognac and he had a full bar you know supplied by the hotel and you know when you're sitting for three shows and you're sitting between the shows you're just sitting around you know and it's just so just too easy to have a lovely glass of cognac mm. you
1: know yeah. <laughs> i'm sure it was lovely as it well it was
2: and and i could see myself you know i could see how dangerous that could be but the story i love to tell about that is that while i was doing three shows a day in the South Lake Shore Room in Harrison, in Lake Tahoe, which was beautiful. It was a full orchestra. It was ice because Peggy Fleming, a gold medalist, was it was an ice skating show, and I was in cleats singing "They're Coming to America" while she was danced while she was skating around me. While that was happening out front in the little bar, in the crummy little bar, as you walked into the South Lake Shore Room, BB King was doing five shows a day. Fuck. <laughs> he was doing five shows a day that's incredible seven days a week yeah and he did it for year after year after year after year after year i just don't understand it. i don't know how people can do that it's 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 a worker mentality um
1: that artist life it's it's a marathon i guess oh
2: man i just it just was soul destroying to me i i was again i i i my my response to that was I'm, I'll never do that again. I don't I don't want to do that. That's not that's not my lifestyle. I don't really like performing to be honest. Um, I much prefer the being in the recording studio and just constructing something. The you know, Just just putting something together. Just hanging out in the studio. It's the ultimate joy. I'm about to do it again tomorrow. I've I've just got some parts from from um, that Joe Camilleri. I've pitched him an idea and he's made some parts and and I'm taking the parts that he's given me to my friend uh, Steve Scanlon tomorrow and we're going to carve them up and turn them into something. And that, to me, will be a joyful day. Yeah. That, that, that's what I like to do. Unfortunately, nowadays, that part of the process, particularly in Australia, I mean, there are obviously guys in London and, and L.A. and Nashville and, and New York and Berlin who are making a living at it, but very hard to in Australia now. Very hard to make a living as a record maker here in in Australia in in the last 10 years, you know. Before that, it was possible people were, you know, people were selling records, you know. People were selling actual records here up until 10 years ago. Yeah. And now that's dissolved. So the the people who are the makers of the records, like I was, there's not really a role for us. People still, there's still a role for people like my friend Steve Scanlon, the engineer, because people still want to go in the, recording studio they still want to record but so they have to pay for him you know (laughs) but but people who were on in the past on a royalty like a producer or a songwriter well there's no royalty you know your only payment is what you get paid to turn up on the day yeah and basically you never see anything again unless you see her you know and see is the exception you know there is you know there there are people like
1: seer but not too many Mm. i guess that's why seeing a lot of uh, maybe artists who are self-producing because well, I guess yeah. the money's in the touring now
2: yeah yeah Yeah, I guess so I mean there's not you know the Mark opitzs of the world I wonder how, that'd be a good conversation to have with him wonder if anybody's paying Mark Opitz, one of our greatest record producers you know made all those fantastic records in the 80s and 90s um, I wonder if anybody's paying him now to make records still maybe but not many you know you can't you, know, you could make a you could make a living out of just your three points as a record producer you know i mean i i had uh, uh, th- th- uh two songs on belinda Carlisle's album uh love, love is, what is it? heaven is a place on earth and um they were not they were just album tracks and one of them was a b-side and I made like 400 grand out of it. Yeah, right. It was fantastic. Yeah. You, know, you know, that same level of success record now, you know, I mean, I don't know. Would it, I don't know how many it would sell. And, and, and the point is that even, even no matter how many it sells or how many streams, you don't get paid anyway. So, mm. you know, it's gone down to being, um, you know, music is free. That's what it is.
1: Yeah, I I had a um, American musician um, uh, Michael League on the show. It's a mm. Band called Snarky Puppy, mm. and uh, and he said that because he's got a, a a label called Ground Up Music. He said one of the artists on their uh, album uh, on their uh, label um, had a concert, five thousand people, and every one of them was singing along with her, and the song had never been bought. Mm. Just there you only, go. It's only been streamed. Yes. Well. Yeah. It's a
2: whole brave new world. It's the the business has turned around, but but it's turned around on a global basis. So, you know, I just don't know how Australian. Well, you know, what's her name? Courtney Barnett. She's she's broken through. Um, five Seconds of Summer have broken through. You, there are still people that that kid from Perth. I can't think of his name. Um, the young kid that sort of dancey sort of kid. That was a YouTube start. So, so there's still, there are still people that are breaking through. There are still people that are breaking through. But, but I was actually able to make a living from just records in the 70s. Just from records. Because mm. I didn't tour. I didn't do any gigs. I did one tour of six gigs. That was it. Yeah, oh, wow. And um, uh, that, 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 as I said, it was literally all I ever But I was actually I was able to buy my grandparents' house with a record. You know, just from eighty thousand albums, I sold eighty thousand albums twice. Yeah, and that was big, significant. Yeah, it was significant, and and all I was getting was five points, and it was nothing. Yeah, (laughs)
0: yeah,
2: it was nothing. But but we got five points from record one. That was the way it was in those days, because otherwise, no. If you know, if you had to get, if you had to recoup your album costs, no artist would make any ever make any money so australian artists got it from record one but they got a low royalty in yeah. the 70s but yeah, as i said it was enough to buy a house you know it was you know so that house would probably be worth six seven hundred grand now so a, a hit album at that time was worth a, a house seven eight seven eight if that was bought at melbourne would be you know one and half million. Mm. but um so it was actually meaningful whereas now that sort of number might be a few grand or something you know
0: yeah
1: it's changed. I think it's the same with um, with with the film economy. I work in the film industry. I think it's mm-hmm. a similar sort of thing with YouTube. You know, it's created a very different economy for filmmakers and for content creators as well.
2: Yes, but on the other hand, uh, there's more content being created now than ever. Yeah, and more really good content. And of course, there's more music. There's lots of great music. There's infinite amounts of great
1: music now. Mm. Um, to, to hook into your point before about you know people breaking out and, uh, and, mm. and people still finding a way through um, I guess that's a kind of oh, Meg
2: Mac she's another one who's fabulous mm. um, yeah sorry there's a few like
1: that um, well you know working on uh, on shows like Australian Idol um, mm. you know was a great platform for people in yeah um, the you know, They've the created brands.
2: The you know, I mean, Millsy's a brand now.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> you know, Paulini is a
2: brand now, for good or bad. Um, you know, Guy Sebastian is a brand.
1: Um, well, you know, talk the, about in your book uh, about how um, there was there was this whitewashing in the music industry yes. and how guy, people like Guy Sebastian would, would never... Guy have, would,
2: well, he didn't get signed. As talented as he clearly is, you know, he, his talent didn't change because he went on Idol. His talent was there before he went on Idol... And the talent that we're seeing now was there for years beforehand. And no record company, no record company was interested. You know, Damien would never, ever get signed. Mm. She would never get signed. No one would ever sign her. We had the guys from Hush, Les Gok. um, They were two Asian guys that were in a band. And this is something that you um, of course Marsha, Marsha. but you know she came through hair and yeah. superstar. But and and a couple of you know there was the Lionel Roses and and uh, you know there've been some Aboriginal singers that have that have come through. But that's a handful.
1: So what were the conversations that were being had? I guess behind closed doors. I
2: wouldn't know. I was I I was a white male. I was. Invited right. right in, you know, yeah, you yeah, yeah. Know, you know, and to uh, gre- greeted, funny enough, by other white males. Yeah, isn't that surprising?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there was this fairly
1: abhorrent culture um, in Australia, I guess, long after the world had kind of moved on and transitioned into a more um, multicultural. Well, I'm
2: not sure that the world had what, what. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't characterize it like that. No, it's just that. not America had, and and certain parts of Europe had, had had evolved, but you know, America in in the '60s and '70s was still really draconian if you were black. Yeah, it's just that the that the that the cross culture of Africans and French and American Indians and English created this extraordinary thing i mean it's it's as as fucked as america truly is and it couldn't be more fucked than it is right now yeah it's 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 and i have an american wife and, and an american daughter and uh, and i love america but it's it's profoundly fucked um but as fucked as it is uh, they still uh, created hip hop they still created jazz they still created um, Apple, they still created Amazon, they still created Netflix, they still created all these things that no other place has done. We all imitate them. You know, China's imitated um, eBay and, and, and all of those things and they're not all even invented by Americans but they but they come out of America and there's just some bizarre genius in America that I just don't understand. Facebook, I mean, God almighty, these monoliths, that that have have absolutely consumed the entire world mm. and 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 done it with such you know rampant capitalism you know and I'm an apple lover and user but they are rampant capitalists yeah you know they are they are they're very
1: good at disrupting industries well
2: i mean no, that's that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking that that, that, that they don't distribute they don't pay Tax, for example. Yeah, right. You know, you know. <laughs> no, they're just absolute one hundred and ten percent capitalists. Yep. And and you know, any any um, groovy feelings we might feel about there being a little apple core on the thing, it's it's they're just these extraordinary businesses that that America keeps creating that nowhere else does. You know, Mr. Turnbull can talk till he's blue in the face, but you know, we've we've yet to invent a Facebook or a or an Amazon or a, I mean what's his name? Harry Ma. Is it Harry Ma what's his name? The guy that's done the, the Chinese one. He he's spent some time in Australia. Um but still it's it's copying the American Yeah. You know it's the just it's, it's 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 imitation. There is a there is a genius in America. But uh
1: coming back to the um whitewashing in Australian music I guess. Yeah.
2: Oh well, no. What I was where I was going with that was only that that, that America has been a multicultural con- country without it being a co- country of equality. Mm. Whereas we we have been uh, we have excluded Asians, uh, you know, ruthlessly. Um, you know, we 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 regarded Aborigines as fauna uh, until the sixties. So yeah, we were a monocultural country until post World War Two. And and so the seventies, it was it was certainly no different, but you know it 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 was there was, a, just a reality that all I was saying was that Guy Sebastian is the classic example. He's somebody whose talent was not changed by Idol. He was somebody who should have been signed by a record by a record company that was just interested in talent, but here he was. He was a Malaysian Australian, and and that just didn't fit. You know, it just didn't fit. They were looking for Kylie. They were looking for Mark Holden. They were looking for, you know. John Farnham. John Farnham. Yeah. Yeah. Who are all valid, but there were a lot of people along the way who didn't get a
1: crack, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you see that being, uh, having changed now?
2: Well, there is no record business now. I mean, I don't yeah. know how. I, 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 you know, it has changed because everybody's their own record business. The the record business used to be the gatekeepers. They're not anymore. The record the record business. There used to be half a dozen A and R men, and they were all men. Um, there used to be, you know, say for in the five or six companies and a f- couple of independents. Maybe there was ten A and R men, and maybe they all signed ten acts a year. Well, that's a hundred. Yeah. That's a hundred acts that that got to maybe make a record that was a very you know very tough threshold to get over well there's no threshold anymore you know everyone i just i don't even do i just go straight into my computer and make my little videos and put them straight out just through the thing on there and that's my video and yeah. and you know and i perform it live into the computer and pooh, i distribute it so i don't spend any money on music anymore mainly if I can, I just I just do my little guitar and do it straight into the computer and put it on Facebook and that's it. Yeah, you know? it's done. <laughs> it's done. Yeah, no cost, so no loss, because any money you put into it, you will
1: lose. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Um, so I guess you know what was the what was the um, the life span of American Idol and your time on that show? I guess leading into. Where we started this conversation—that you're getting fired. Um, what was the
2: lifespan of that? What show? was what was your experience? Oh, uh, my like my experience was fabulous. Show. I loved it. It was, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, i i did get I did get uh, anxious for that as well, because uh, I did I did suffer anxiety as as at different times during that. But I always lifted myself, um, just because of the thrill of that. Red light fever, you know, the going live on a Sunday night, going live on a Monday night, you know, that's very intoxicating. Yeah, and and stressful because I do, I did find myself, you know, waiting for the phone to ring the next morning with the ratings, and you know, I got I bought into all of that, and
1: it's all those different layers of addiction.
2: Yeah, it is, and and you know, while it was, you know, while we were a hit, that was great. <laughs> not so good when you're not a hit. Yeah, which is why I got fired. You know, we got crushed by Kath and Kim, and uh, which you did some guest spots on. Which I did, yeah. Um, well, I, mean, I love, I love those girls. They're obviously geniuses, but yeah. we were, we were crushed by them, and that was devastating. And then they blamed it on me, and I was the one that the bone was pointed at, and and uh, you know, I, being a loner and not having created a network of, of alliances um i was disposable and because uh, you know i didn't even have a manager i represented myself and you know i hustled my own deals there and do a direct do, deal directly with the general manager of channel 10 it was great fun mm. you know so I, you know, it was devastating but then you know it created the opportunity for me it created the impetus for me to go well i'm 55 i'm too young to retire my my mentors. My senior mentors in my life, which was generally my brother and my my uncle, you know, told me it was too young to retire. I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't retire. And I took. I, I know that they were right. And so it, it gave me the impetus to, to go. Well, what am I going to do now? You know, because the music business had kind of dissolved. Under I'd lost Vanessa. I'd lost Joel. I had no acts. Um, and so I had no axe and the business had kind of you know, evaporated. So there wasn't anything for me to do really in that, in that world. So the law came back as something that I could turn my mind to and that was unfinished business. And, and, and I had managed to get a degree by that time, you know, finally.
1: And I read it, that it was a way for you to try and rebuild some sense of self-worth. As well. Absolutely.
2: It was definitely about showing and showing my daughter really that you know, I could uh, take a big uh, body blow and come back in some way and that, that it wasn't going to define me. And so it, it was, uh, you know, and it, it, it's proved to be that and it's been fantastic. It's been, I've met the greatest people. I've got some really good lifelong friends out of it now. Um, it's forced my brain into a sliding doors thing of what if I had uh, had that as my life? What if I hadn't dropped out? four months before my final exams in my fourth year in 1971? What if I hadn't done that, or 73, or whatever it was? Um, what if I'd stayed and become a lawyer? And, and, and now having done it, I know that the 22 year old, that 21, 22 year old who just said, no, nah, I'm gonna drop out, final year of law, you know, much, can you imagine? Nearly at the end, uh, and I just tapped that young man on the back and I go, thank you, mate. Thank you very much for that for that innate wisdom that you had to give me the life that you gave me. You know, this whole life I've had because that young man said, nah, it's the yeah. law. <laughs> I think I'll be a musician. Yeah. <laughs> With no uh, justification for it because I wasn't a very good musician, wasn't a very good singer. Still not uh, a very good musician, and uh, and and I, you know, because there are people like Vanessa, for example, who are who are just supremely talented, and who have some God. She's got a God-given gift with her voice. She's also a great writer and producer and everything. But she's got a God-given gift with her voice. I don't have that. Um, There's people like uh, writers, you know, like Sia or or uh, you know, just any any of the great writers that you know Prince they're just extraordinary writers I'll never be that Uh, I never uh, so I was lucky to have a handful of hits and they came from from really just the just you know pressing that coal until it became a diamond you know yeah and and years of pressing that coal and uh, and only a handful little handful of diamonds but
1: um, but you have to have that persistence and that consistency and that tenacity. In a I guess, industry. but without
2: any real good reason to believe that it was even possible. Yeah. And I think that you need that as well. You need that. Yeah. You need that sort of blind, which I think you can have as a young person, where you can have that sort of you know you jump off a cliff blindly and just go okay here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I do. I think that the thing that writing that book did for me was was it, it just made me appreciate the 22 year old me that turned his back on that life and went on this beautiful fantastic journey that's taken me all around the world and and uh, that's led to being here you know this is the house that absolutely everybody built um yeah. beautiful house <laughs> thank you you know i mean it's a blessing it's just i i i'm just absolutely amazed i can't i can't understand how it happened
1: yeah <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Mark. I um, there, there's uh, there's a question that I end every conversation with, but okay. there's also one that I usually weave into the conversation, which I um, I haven't because we've just mm. kind of been so engaged meandered. and meandered. Um, you mentioned that you've just written this one man show mm. um, about your family circus, and, yes. I, and I I did have a read online and and um, learned that um, this family circus was started by uh, one leg, yes, Adolphus. Trape- yes
2: Artists. yes well my father called him a one-legged trapeze artist he actually wasn't he was a one-legged triple bar artist and slack wire artist yeah wow which is different and uh yeah no he he had 10 kids and and they were all musicians and that's the part of it that attracts me right that it, what attracts me is that they were all musos and i've got these beautiful photos of them you know with the uh, it's i've taken oh yeah here it is uh and you, could see, you can see they're all... Yeah, wow. And uh, I just love that they're all musos. And this generation, my generation, but even my son and, and my cousin's sons and, and his, his grandkids sing, it's just something that's in... You know, my son is in bands. He's a, he's a bureaucrat, works for the government in South Australia. But he has bands yeah, and wow. he records and he's a showman. And he's a very good showman. It's just, just something beautiful about that, that, that that it's that it's carried down through the years and, and it's still in us somehow or other and it's and it's and it's innate. It's not uh, mm. it's not learned. It's I mean we obviously do learn as we live, but but it's something in the genes, you know, like the cancer gene is in our family, yeah, you right.
1: know. But we've also got the music gene, which is great. So I guess my question or this question that I, that I uh, like to ask everyone is if they remember the first time that they performed or that they did this thing. So I guess in your case, do you remember the first time you picked up an instrument or performed some music?
2: I, uh, I think I probably, the first time I performed would have been more, um, I, I did some like, uh, pantomimes, you know, in like local shows. One, one of them, I was Prince Charming uh, down at the Glenelg Town Hall. And, and, and my brother was the one that played the guitar and, and, and I just would pick it up after him. And he had a Bob Dylan songbook and, and that showed how to the chords, that had the chord shapes. And I didn't know the songs, but there were the words and I could create the chord shapes and I'd make up my own melodies for the words. And I just changed the chords when the, when the, when, you know, along with the words. And that sort of got me going. As a, probably a I don't know a ten year old eleven year old twelve year old yeah, somewhere, no. somewhere around that and there was a piano in the house that was my grandmother's and Mum used to play it and unfortunately I never learnt but but I, I I just found I used to find myself just sitting at the piano and just figuring out how to make sounds and and making enough sounds to make chords and and then making enough chords to try and write something I just it, it, it it, yeah, it was just it was innate. It really was because it, it. My dad was a singer and mum was a piano player, but and there was always music in the house. But they would never have entertained the idea of being musicians, or or even trying to live from that. You know. But whereas my brother, he's sixty six. He's in three bands. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, the lead singer for uh, for the Masters Apprentices current incarnation. Um, He's been in bands all his life. He's a he's a builder, a developer. He's a vice chairman of the housing trust, and he's in three bands at yeah. 66. <laughs> he's exhausting.
1: It's incredible. He's
2: exhausting. You know, he just loves it. You know, for him, it's like, it's like his you know old scholars football club or something. You know, for him, it's the thing he needs to do to get out there and perform and sing, and that's anti. It's opposite of business. Whereas for me, it's been my business. It has been so. It's different for Craig and I. For him, it's been his kind of part-time passion, whereas for me, it's been
1: the cornerstone of my life. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Your book you. is uh, available at readings. Is it
2: good? I'm happy to hear that.
1: Um, I, I end all of my conversations with the same question, Mark, and that question is, "What makes you silly?" What makes
2: me silly? Oh my God, I'm pretty silly all the time. <laughs> no, I am. I'm. I'm really silly. I'm. I am. I'm. I'm happy to be silly. Everything makes me silly. I, I, I love, uh, you know, I love watching the National 9 News, Neary Thai. You know, I lo- you know Neary Thai? No. Neary, Neary Thai, National 9 News. She does all the crime stuff. Right. And so, you know, I've seen her around the courts and, you know, I go up and say <laughs> hello to Neary Thai. So, I, you know, I, I, I love, you know, Pete and all the, And I talk to the telly and I thank Pete for his beautiful reading of the news that right. night. And, you know, no, I, I can be silly. I love silly. I love silly.
1: There's a great quote uh, I read of yours where uh, you said you've you've got where, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but where you've gotten to a point in your life where you, where you're not so worried about what people think or anything oh like that, and, and you 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 kind of just feel free to be able to do whatever you want. I, I
2: that's I wish that were absolutely true. Um, you still, I still am. Um, you know, I, I I still haven't got to the level of my late mother, who, in her last stages of dementia lost all the social graces and just went to the reptile right um she just became the reptile and it was uh, that was pretty frightening mm. so I still haven't quite and got rid of got rid of all of the the social mores etc but for example with uh, with Bobo and on, on Dancing with the Stars when I did Putin you know I'd lost my mojo and I started to worry about what because I was there was so much hate coming at me that I started to worry and in fact I should have just gone harder because that's how i really feel what i really should have done is i should have smuggled on either a rubber saw or a real saw (laughs) because i was starting to saw i was trying to mime sawing the desk into as putin i was trying to annex the eastern side but i lost my mojo and i didn't follow through with it yeah right and i should have totally gone full out on it and actually hidden a saw and actually saw the actual desk and they would have gone berserk they would have had they would have had the the uh security they would have dragged me off (laughs) and that's what i should have done yeah and it was my lack of the thing that you're saying that i have that that it was only in retrospect i went oh my god i missed an opportunity yeah to just completely go completely wild you know completely commit, <clears throat> completely commit because you know i'm going to be dead in five minutes as i said to the as i said to the guys at channel seven they were trying to tell me not to do these things i said here's your problem mate i don't have a mortgage and i'm going to be dead soon there's nothing that you can say that unless you've got an idea that that's going to make this performance better and funnier and wilder if there's nothing that you can say to me that's going to i, I know i'm never going to work for you I don't, I don't hold out hope that Channel 7's ever going to employ me again. <laughs> I know you're not. Yeah. And even if you were, I'm probably going to be dead. <laughs>
1: oh, well, fuck them. Yeah,
2: exactly. That's my philosophy. Yeah. That's my philosophy, exactly. Well, good yeah, on you.
1: Thank you yeah. so much, Mark. Cheers.